millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. On the way here, I, I was... Patrick used to live very close to me where I live in Hackney. And uh, back in the late... 80s, early 90s, we were doing a lot of exploring of the territory together. And I was standing on the platform of the wonderful London Overground Station at Haggerston just now, and there was a new, new poster had gone up, and I thought this is something Patrick could get his teeth into. So Transport for London, and, and it said, um, walk a new route, find an old friend. And then there was this picture, which I wondered how they conjured up of a someone kind of almost as bald as me who was disappearing into the embrace of a lavishly silver head, like a kind of Italian matinee idol of a certain age. And you wondered what they'd got up to together, and there they'd met. And then there was one of these triplets that you always get underneath, like, see it, what, what, what are the kind of blow-up ones? See it, say it, sorted, all that Sorted, stuff. yeah, so it's terribly Walk, yeah. cycle, discover. I couldn't get the connection because walk and cycle, when they come together, it's not about discover. <laughs> no. So anyway, uh, in Pat, you know, we know we're talking about my book, but I'm also going to talk about Patrick's books because uh, on living in an old country and journey through ruins are very much part of his territory. And going back to on, on living in an old country, which was published in 1985. 85, yeah. There's one section which is called Ghosts of the Inner City. And I thought, it's here true. we go. Yeah. Um, th this, this is about walking with ghosts as much as living with buildings. And I thought, well, essentially there's quite a nice trajectory here from mm -hmm. what we were doing then, well under the radar, through to what we are kind of allowed to do now when things have changed so dramatically. It's good. I think I, I, I like the title of this book because it's so un-Ian. Living with well, buildings. My, my, I, I my, let me just say, it what sounds like living with multiple sclerosis to me. <laughs> I mean, I, or living with I, something terrible. You know, I living with an ailment. No ailments. choice about this title because it's the title of the exhibition. So mine is a kind of PR. Yeah, no, no. I said my title, if I could have it, is living with ghosts and walking yeah. with buildings. No, I mean, I, I'm quite good at NAF titles. I always thought you had a sharper mind on this, but no, I understand this is connected to a welcome exhibition which opens. Yeah next month so it's a sort of uh i think it's slightly close to sort of charles jenks it's the history of social architecture perhaps and charles jenks and the maggie centers it's got those elements in it and um the book itself is interesting to me because what what ian does is he goes instantly into it I, the last time ian and i talked we were talking about on the occasion of his book the last of london or the last london 
And, I, and Ian said to me afterwards, he said, really, you know, the next, the next one, I really am not going to write about London again. He said, I said, well, where are you going to go, Ian? Because I couldn't imagine how he could leave this place. When I reviewed his Scarlet Trace, his Whitechapel Scarlet Trace, and I said at the end, this guy's in motion, he's going to be moved on. I mean, that was my concluding sentence. And of course, every time Ian comes up with another book, redirecting his, his way through London, I'm always thinking, well, I got it wrong yet again. But the, the, the last time we talked, you were about to go to Latin America. You were going to go into Herzog's territory and recover the story of a... That's, that's, that's the... It's to come. I love the sound of it. Yes, that's, that's a long-term fantasy. I've actually fed it into many, many books along the way. There was, a, there was a book called Dining on Stones, which I wrote when I started to spend time down in Hastings. And the conceit below that, you know, when I thought, I thought this is the moment we, we leave London, and what a joke. So I kind of thought we move, move to Hastings, and I, I start to seriously look at my great-grandfather's book, which he wrote about um, making an expedition to the sources of the Amazon, where he comes upon these indigenous people, and of course, um, basically is looking to turn it into a coffee colony. He was He was a a botanist and a, a writer who, whose style, I can, everything I've done is his style. I've, I've never gone further than he did. And, and what's really interesting now is that my, my daughter started to push serious research into this territory and met a, a Russian-American anthropologist who meets these same tribal peoples every year because she's compiling a dictionary. They're dying out. There's nobody, nobody left. And she discovered that they had two languages. One was upriver and one was downriver. Mm. And when I heard that, you know, I nearly fell over. And I discovered that their sense of time was that before the arrival of these three Scotsmen who turned up under the auspices of the London Peruvian Corporation, who'd been handed a massive tranche of land, their time was plural and it was associated with place, which is mm. really part of what's in this book. That if you wanted to contact a particular ancestor, you, you just went to this location and you spent time there. It, it, time didn't stop. But after the arrival of these white people who, who had other ideas entirely, time became linear. Mm. And I thought that that, again, is, is very significant. Mm -hmm. So um, Farn, my daughters, found out that there were three very separate accounts written of this expedition, which took about a year, that my, my great-grandfather's was kind of humorous, he got he got very into he found he found it interesting that they chewed coca leaves and they so he started to chew coca leaves and thought this was going to be much better than alcohol. The priests who were guiding them were were outrageously drunk and disappeared when the last bottle of medicinal brandy was gone, and left them there. And the second man was a, a true sort of Scots pedant who just described the distances, the soil types, all of the technical stuff. And any time a strange incident happened, he said, I, there, there was a very curious incident, but I won't talk about that here. And then the third guy was a very young guy who was doing his first trip and left a hundred-page handwritten manuscript, which has been dug out of queue. So anyway, there's all that stuff mm. which hovers. But I, you know, it takes kind of money and organization to do that. Yeah, of course. And the uh, filmmaker but Grant, you, you, Grant you G found, has been working around it, but we've got no... You found your own way, though, Ian, of sort of... Um, in, I mean, you were talking almost about sort of Aboriginal modes of thought there, but yeah. you found your own way of sort of insisting upon a kind of relational way of thinking within urban space. 
Yes. Well, the Which, thing... And so when you, when, you, when you open this book and you think, okay, what happens in chapter one is you go back to Christchurch, yeah. which of course you've been to before. Yeah. And so I'm thinking now, why is he coming back to Christchurch again? But actually you're, you're going there because you've got this question of buildings and health, which actually you turn very quickly into about buildings and disease, yeah. buildings and malevolence, buildings and a sort of haunting that is the way that so much of history still maintains a hold on the present. And you are talking about a kind of depth of experience which the last London tends to, it threatens to expunge yes. completely. And you're also talking about relational possibilities in reality that is usually gridded in terms of space and, you know, ab abstraction, really. So there's a kind of imaginative depth which you're constantly trying to find another way of maintaining in these, these works. Well, I think with these significant buildings, like Nicholas Hawksmoor's Christchurch Spitalfield, they become accumulations of all kinds of consciousness over a long, long period of time that they seem to absorb histories in a way and affect the people around them, even the people who don't want to set foot inside those buildings. I mean, someone like um, the painter Leon Kossoff, who, who grew up in Arnold Circus nearby, you know, which was a, a development that, that grew out of the, the, the sort of darkness of the Jack the Ripper period. They started to look at buildings as a way of re renewing the health and so he lives there, he comes down, and he looks at this completely alien building, but, but creates an amazing series of paintings by his alienation from the building and the way that the building reaches into the sky. And then, um, obviously, Jack London, who comes to, to England in the early part of the 20th century as a kind of tourist. To, to he sort of gets stuck here. To the he? lower depths. He came to do a journalistic commission and then it yes. was cancelled, was, but he was already on the boat. Yeah. So, so it was a sort of accidental... So he, he, he acquires sort of clothes, disguise, mm. whereby he can disappear into this territory. And there's a whole series of rather interesting photographs. And he circles around Christchurch, but he never goes in. And then I began to think more that it's not so much that the, the buildings um, cause the, these... these critical conditions in terms of health, but that the buildings themselves have a kind of super health within them. They have the bugs and germs, and the answer is to keep moving and avoid that kind of static condition, particularly with hospitals. best mm. thing to do with hospitals is to walk around them, get the benefit, but don't go in, never go in. <laughs> can, I, can I just kind of touch on that little thing about Christchurch? Because Christchurch, I think there's two, two things of dominated everything I've done about London in all these books. First, from 1962, I came here as a, as a film student, not knowing anything of London, and was down in Brixton in um, Electric Avenue. And I kept walking across to, to Tate, the Tate Gallery, there was only one at that time, where this Francis Bacon exhibition with a painting from Van Gogh's Painter on the Road to Tarascon, an amazing painting of this burdened walker so he's, he's under the, the, the rucksack with all his painting kit. He's on this boiling, tarry road, and he's stopped, and he's, he's staring across at the, the viewer. I became completely obsessed by that image of the man dragging his burden around him, a kind of John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress figure. That was the, that was the one image. And then the other image was stasis in terms of Christchurch Spitalfields which seemed to be a history of architecture because the way the building works is that all the different periods of history are piled up in a stack and they hold, they're, they're sculptural and wonderful. 
So I just, I just read this little fragment about how Leon Kossoff came across that. Our great contemporary painter of this territory, Leon Kossoff, came at Christchurch from another angle entirely. He grew up near Arnold Circus among the reefs of tidy public housing that replaced the old nickel rookeries. He stood at the mouth of Fournier Street and then crouched to resurrect a child's awed but responsive strike at the rearing columns. He dignifies the structure as an unstable organic form, a buttery, slithering mass of many mysterious apertures, but no point of entry. Kossoff does not stray into the fenced garden. He makes his preliminary drawings, stupendous dashes, diagnostic marks, whipping lines of charcoal and chalk, the firm vertical strokes of the Tuscan columns challenged by zigzag hatchings from the north side as he comes down once more from his childhood home. These drawings are heroic captures from the tumble of a frail craft about to be dashed against stupendous rocks or swept headlong into the wash of Fournier Street. The hieratic building, a fanciful history of architecture in one staff, period lofted on period, sways at anchor and shears away from the witness. The tip of the stone mast before the raft of vision is overwhelmed. Paul Morehouse in his Tate Gallery publication, Leon Kossoff, 1996, says that the painter's enthusiasm for the motif after previous struggles was rekindled by a reading of Hawksmoor, the Peter Ackroyd novel published in 1985. Kossoff has spoken about how Arnold Circus looked and felt on one August day of dusty sunlight. It was like the London of Blake's Jerusalem. The abnegation of place and the plurality of time manifest as a psychic seizure. The urgency that drives me to work is not only to do with the pressures of the accumulation of memories and the unique quality of the subject on this particular day, but also the awareness that time is short and not just, as the painter implies, for a London threatened by the presumption of city towers, but for its own health and strength. The area's continued resistance is encoded in the thrust of Christchurch's spectacular elevation. It's by its monumental flight into unimpeded space that we remember this building. Well, what I, what I also remember from very close to there is Princelet Street and the room of the um, hermit and disappeared figure of David Rudinsky, who way back, you wrote a, a piece for the London Review of Books, so since we're here, let's reference that. And I was just thinking how wonderful this was, that the front cover of the London Review of Books was this photograph of a, a huge, ugly wardrobe in Rudinsky's yeah, classic, room. Classic East End that, Jewish you, repro you trade, it was. segue yeah. into a, yeah. a piece about my writing, which you kind of call as a demented magus of the welfare state. Yeah, I was. It is, it, it, this is probably worth, given where we are now, and let's raise a glass to Emmanuel Macron today. Um, uh, let's, uh, it's probably worth going back. I mean, I think we can allow ourselves to remember this period a bit because um, what happened when I met Ian, I'd been in Vancouver. I'd been working with, um, I'd spent a very, very, I'd done a very, very, very slow motion master's degree because I knew when it ended, I had to come back here. Um, and the 70s were not a particularly easy time. So I, I'd been in Vancouver working with a lot of people involved with poetics at that time. 
and you were into Olsen. And yeah, yeah, Kofsky and all those and Black all Mountain yeah. people. And I worked with a man called Robin Blazer, who's another mm. wonderful writer of that, of, that, of that school. And I remember coming back and um, I met Ian sort of shortly after my return, having picked up some of this material he was writing about Hawksmoor, which of course was the material that eventually Peter Ackroyd found his way over and sort of ghosted into his own particular form, using rather more of Ian than I would have thought was safe, but he got away with it. Um, but anyway, so and I, but I was always also kind of worried about the political situation because it seemed to me that it was obvious to everybody the whole political culture was in some sort of chaos and that the post-war settlements had not only died, but that the institutions that made that world that... Uh, we had grown up in as children were being systematically destroyed. So when I read Ian's work on those churches and this sort of apparently preposterous sort of mantic vision of curses built into the ground of London, I saw them as a, as a, as a sort of poetic approach. I didn't believe this man was Alistair Crowley and that he actually believed these things. And I, I still saw, I think Ian does believe this stuff a little bit more than I ever did. But I, I saw this as a kind of um, an imaginative response to the destruction of everything that we knew in terms of the welfare state and the post-war settlement. It was like post-war reason given a kind of weird, occult, malevolent form. So I saw the triangulation of London around the Hawksmoor churches that Ian proposed as being a, a way of engaging with the politics of the moment. It seemed to me that uh, when the next book was downriver, and it was the next book, bar mm. three or four, you know, that, that was when that imagination came out of its quite marginal status and really became a book of that period. But, but the, it really sort of hit the politics in a way. Yeah, because what, what emerged then in the Thatcherite period is this stuff, actually, these proposals became public. They became documents, You talk about this yeah. monument that was proposed for, for Docklands, which was a kind of a spear-like tower, you know, which, which was, was had a kind of latent occult properties to it. It was never built, but it, it, yeah, um, yeah. those kind of yeah. things were in the air, that the way that the, the, the regime would have been celebrated was by uh, things that were completely outrageous. Mm. Um, and, and whereas with Hawksmoor, there, there, was a, there was a sense of a recovery of London after the fire of London. It was, it was yeah. on the tail end of that. And, and he but your, your imagination then, it, it seemed to me, came straight out of well, 1968. So, but was, and yet there we were in 1979, 1980. So it was yes. interesting. You well, sort of survived by well, being sort of, the edges. A sort of element of the 60s ran, yeah. ran really, yeah. what I think of as it, ran through from the late 60s to the mid-70s. Mid yeah. yeah. in, in that, um, after, after the kind of mid-60s moments that were where anything kind of seemed possible, we ran very, really rapidly realized it wasn't and we got down to the getting on with the real business and then everybody took real jobs and I was I was working as a grass cutter and in Truman's Brewery and all that thing which allowed you in Truman's Brewery to, to find out about Rudinsky's room and, and get in there and your kind of lunch hour. Yeah, I mean, the, the world, the, the, or, that part of East London was great. Churches. I mean, my, my memory of East London is part is later but what, one of the things I do remember to, I talked to somebody who worked at the V&A about... Um, the wallpaper collection. Now you'd think this would be an irrelevant thing for East London, but basically what the story was, was that if you wanted to get examples of 18th, early 19th century wallpaper, you had to go to East London. Mm. And that's because nobody had ever had enough money to refurbish their houses mm. properly. So, and I remember moving into, um, you know, I, I, when I moved into Dalston, I paid 
I think we paid £95,000 for a five-bedroom house. Even then it seemed cheap, although it was hard to raise. And I remember decorating rooms and literally you could peel the wallpaper off, right. layer and after layer, and get right back to the original, 1860. So Rachel White Street, I mean, is yeah. sort of essentially casts those things, this idea of that, yeah. that wallpaper as a kind of domestic history. So there, there was a correlation then between sort of decay and dereliction and poverty but and memory, say, a nice which is interesting. You say in your, your Ghosts of the Inner City when you're in Stoke Newington, you, you flip it that the, the decay of the urban fabric is such that the tarmac that's covered the, the, the cobblestones is actually now rotting away. Yeah. And so the original cobblestones are almost sort of floating to the surface and giving you the ghosts of a city that's always there. And that's the, the kind of plural London that I, I believe we need to hang on to. Yeah, and it's also, it's sort of a London full of otherness. That's what I remember thinking very strongly was that it was, you know, there were potentialities in very ordinary presences. You know, that there were, there were unexpected events. There were, there were places that, I might, when I moved to Dalston, there was a, a sort of derelict estate agent opposite the place that is now Dalston Kingsland Orange Line Station. You know it better than me because I'm not there anymore. But there was an estate agent on that sort of bridge which had been closed down. It had gone bankrupt in the late 50s. And it was still, well, maybe mid-60s, but it was still advertising houses for sale at prices from 20 years previously. You look at the window, and it would still be there. It would be all dusty and faded. But there were, there were these sort of time warps that were just the results of dereliction. They were the result of the fact that nobody had any reason to shove money in at that time. So we, we had a city or a part of the city, which I didn't move there for any romantic reason. I moved there because you could live there and you could get some space and you didn't have to be a millionaire. You didn't have to be even slightly wealthy to do it. So that was the sort of kind of place we were in. And the imaginative potentialities of it, and there are, there are many other parts of London and of other cities which had this quality at that time. Of course, there was a lot of decay and dereliction. The local authorities had already been sort of brought to a juddering halt by incompetence, politics, government policy. Well, it was sort of like Bernard Copps sort of wrote about still... There were these old men sitting in rooms in Hackney trying to get Radio Moscow on their, on their radio. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. You know? and, sure. And that sense was there, you know, strongly. I mean, a building like the, the German hospital off Graham Road, which gradually got converted into smart luxury flats, but still had all its original ghosts in place, is still very much the place that Joseph Conrad came into when he had his collapse in the Congo. He goes into the hospital on Graham yeah. Road and cooks up the heart of darkness from what he brings back. Yeah. And you know, that, that sense of a city is immense. And that's tr partly what I'm trying to do in this book. So, so the Rock. challenge for, for you yes. now, and for, for both of us, for all of us really, is how does one avoid becoming a sort of reprehensibly drooling, romantic old man? Right. Difficult. Well, it's str we're struggling. Well, you, you, know? keep, I mean, you keep but moving. Why, is, why does this stuff matter? You, you keep moving, you don't get old. Yeah. You die, but you don't get old. <laughs> okay, that is that. That's kind of all. Basically, yeah. what it says is that it's uh, it's kind of the impulse to get out and go through these landscapes again and again, and to bring, if if feasible, pe people with you, and then you know to see someone. We, we talked when outside. We were talking about the Peeps Estate, and it's quite interesting that you get this critique of the Peeps Estate in the night, which is built in the mid 1960s, 
um, John Betjeman. Okay, South London, it. high rise, yes. largely high rise, isn't it? No, the, the, no, it isn't actually. It's, it's known the, the, for there, its are, there are two or three big high rise okay. towers, and then yeah. there's a lot quite quite low rise yeah, okay. that were linked together by walkways, which have been destroyed because they led to kind of drug dealing communities, and the. The tower on actually on the river, because of what happens on the river now with, with London, has been rebranded um, and sold in the private sector. It's called Aragon Tower, and I thought this is a sort of psychogeographical tribute to Louis Aragon, but it, unfortunately it's Catherine of Aragon. Um, and there's this amazing tower that's been completely made over and is full of luxury apartments. The rest of the estate, a lot of it is still as was, and. Um, Betjeman's program that came in the 60s was made entirely by helicopter, which was quite kind of ahead of its time. And the helicopter goes down this building and he anathematizes it as being horrifying that people have to live on the 20th floor and the lifts aren't going to work and they're going to be cut off. How terrifying, how terrifying. And that kind of vision has, has gone on and been reinforced say, by things that happened at Grenfell. No, I mean, the high-rise, it, it, it became... I found that was too simplistic. Yeah, no, you're you know, right, because you've, you've rehabilitated the high-rise. Because um, I, I knew someone that lived there, who was the filmmaker, Andrew Cotting, whose daughter, Eden, suffered from Joubert syndrome, which is very, very debilitating and wiped her out. And yet, that community that he was in, he found incredibly supportive, mm. that, that people mm. from all strata around him, because everybody there was slightly desperate and all on their last legs, um, really, really was good. And, and there were medical facilities easily available to him and everything, everything about it. The atmosphere of being on this estate near the river worked. Mm. And so I mean, I think it I get, depend upon the things that you imagine have to be delivered. Go, I mean, going, taking that back to the welcome, I mean, we don't have to go to the welcome brief, obviously, but the, the, um, the, the truth is that people can leave good lives in bad buildings. Yes. And the architectural press never acknowledges that. One of my, no. one of my arguments with Raphael, I used to have many arguments with Raphael Samuel, yes. the Labour historian, but I remember him saying to me once, when part of Charing Cross Road, which used to have Dobell's Jazz and Blues shop on it, I mean, yeah. those, you, I can tell by your age, by whether you nod with recognition, but the, the west side of leading down to Charing Cross, um, these, I guess, early Victorian buildings were demolished. And a building which every time I walked down it, I just think is horrible, was put up instead. This is presumably in the late 80s, early 90s. And Raphael Samuel always said to me, look, you've got to look at that building because what you learn from that building is that you can use bad buildings well. Mm. And I'm not sure that he was entirely right about that building, but I think it is true that the sort of architectural view of the world has a kind of fundamental flaw in it if it doesn't allow for that possibility. And architectural porno magazine photography doesn't allow for that possibility because it doesn't still allow the human use of buildings into well, view. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think also that the, the, the strongest sense of community that emerges is when it's all over, when the game's up and the thing's being pulled down and there's a remnant of community hanging on. Like Andrea Luca Zimmerman's film made you know, round the corner from where I am, which is a big block of flats running down to the, the river, which a lot of people loved a lot. And then they were, they were doomed and they were going to be pulled down. Well, the, the remnant of people that were left, suddenly their attention was heightened and burnt by this idea that they're, they're not going to be there long. And a whole series of connections start to work. And it's lovely, you know, it's, it's mm. just, and the set, to a degree, the same thing with the Golden Lane Estate, which I write about, because uh, um, a, a big 
building in front of it, rather elegant building that had been a police building of all things, was, was being demolished to put up an enormous new development. And the dust and the, you know, the theft of light and all those things that are happening brought this bunch of people together. So that the incomers who were, who were buying in because this was a, a hip sort of environment to live in and the older folk that had been there since it started when it, when it was a, a place to live for people who worked in the city, not, not um, in the financial sector, but the actual carpenters and electricians and people who had to live out in the suburbs could live here. And they suddenly got together because it, it was threatened to the point of extinction. And so you realize that's what makes the communities, not the... It's impossible for an, an architect to kind of pre-plan good health. It comes by accident for other reasons. Now, you, you've, you've got three sections in this book. Yes. First one's called Move. Yeah. Second one's called Further. That's where you get to the South London. Yeah. And then move is mostly in East End. And then move, you've got Move is my own is sort of familiar familiar territory. And then yeah. I kind of nudge myself further um, because obviously, if you're going to talking in this this way, you have to deal with Corbusier and Unité d'habitation in Marseille because a lot of these buildings were took that as an ideal, and I wanted to go there. But you went to see Jonathan went, Meads. Went to, well, I knew, I knew that Jonathan Meads, at the, who's written kind of pretty aggressively about all kinds of architecture, had ended up choosing to, to live in this building. And that no sooner, which was supposedly a model of health and everything, he no sooner moved into it than, than his flat, or the flats near him went up in, in flames. And yet, unlike Grenfell, because it was so high maintenance and the, the, everything in it is really of the highest quality. The fire wasn't that damaging. Nobody was killed. Um, people had to leave their flats for a short time, so he couldn't live in it. He got back into his flat. He then had sort of multiple bypass heart surgery. <laughs> so it, in those senses, it wasn't, it wasn't healthy. And I got this image of him when I went to visit him. It's quite strange because he was, he was on a sort of bicycle treadmill looking at the landscape and, and playing Schubert or something. And I said, don't, don't you ever, what, what happens if you want to go to the market? It's 200 yards down the road. So I get in the car. So I thought, you know, here we are. It's a very, very weird version of health. And yet, it is beautiful. And you know, you walk around the roof and you realize this, this building can achieve a kind of perfection. But the original was supposed to be 17 of these things stretching through a whole trunk down to the sea and supposed to be public housing and it never was. It was just bought by mm. sort of sh shrewd professionals and artists and lawyers and so on. They, they bought into it and it became that kind of building, a showpiece. Unlike the one I flip it to, which is um, Marine Court in, in Hastings, a, a boat building that was built before Corbusier, the other side of the war, just before the war. And it's like a model of the Queen Mary, a kind of great rotting concrete hulk full of ghosts, which I loved, uh, but which doesn't have any of this input into it and, and is, is kind of written out and is full of the strangest stories. So I just think you know, the one thing you get from this, all of these things, and you know, you've found it in most of your work. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juvederm.com. You don't discover it till you sort of get out on the road. You do get out on the move. You, you look at very intently at what's immediately in front of your door. And you talk to the people on your doorstep, and, and a story emerges. You're, you're not in hock to any particular theories or theoreticians. So, I mean, I know you've. No, I, 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 the Frankfurt I think theoreticians and so on all over your, your books. But I, mean, I, I, do, I try to do that less now, <laughs> although maybe I should do it more. But um, no, I agree with you. I mean, I think I mean what I learned sort of uh, early on was by not being an academic because I was I didn't join the university world till I was in my fifties. I did I did work much closer to journalism, and I didn't like most journalism because I always felt that you just find out what you should be starting, and that's the article. That was my experience. I, I, I enjoy and value good reportage and things, but I, I found myself sort of in that. I was lucky. I worked for The Guardian just before the tabloidization took place. And it's a long time ago now, but they used to have a kind of broadsheet second part of the mm. paper. And you could, you could get a 5,000-word article on that. And, I mean, now you'd be lucky to get 1,500 anywhere in the paper, yeah. any of the papers now. So, I mean, it was a, it was a very fortunate time for a certain kind of writing but it wasn't for me that wasn't sustainable but it, I did learn a great deal from journalism uh, you know that actually you can go and see people but also as we were talking, talking outside you, you were saying now that you know you felt publication could move back to those small presses and independent yeah presses I, that, I think so that, that you need so. that that kind of freedom to well I noticed I mean I came into this bookshop and which I think is a wonderful institution and I have no, nothing but praise for it I really mean that sincerely. But I look at the books and they're so slim. And I was, I'm a judge of a, I was last week, I was the judge of a thing called the Al Rodin Prize, which is uh, 25,000 pounds for a writer. It's a good prize to get. And, you know, we had all these um, books that we, we, we went through the shortlist. I noticed that a lot of them were, were written by people. You could feel the editor twisting the writer and saying, this is too long or, or boast more. You could feel the points where really interesting people would suddenly start saying, and you may know, I am the person who, you know, I think, please. And so, so the kind of pressure on the book trade has been difficult. And, you know, the kinds of work that you do, and I mean, I know you've had experience of this as well, um, and, and the stuff that the projects I have, they're all sort of more, they're sort of like archaeological sites. You're investigating things that have interconnections and that have multiple elements. And if a publisher says, right, what is this book about? And say it in one sentence. And if you can't say it in one sentence, you're a confused idiot. They don't never quite say that bit. But that is sort of what also, is happening. I, I then you, you end up thinking, I think I'll do this on my own terms. You know? I think you have to find what it is by doing it. You yeah. can't, can't pre-pitch it no, and lay exactly it all out right. and do it. 
yeah. every one of these things you've done, it becomes a journey. Yeah, and then you cut it yourself. But it's you, like you, 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 you assemble no, exactly. the material. That's what this is. You know, and then you cut. But, uh, but I didn't want to cut because somebody said well, this could only this, be 50 it, pages It's very more. simple, really, in a sense that all that Hawksmoor stuff's been there before. But the, the difference is that I got pushed very early on to go and look at these paintings. So there's a, pa a painter, an artist called Rebecca Hind, had done a, a Reredos triptych in that church. And this completely fought with the, with the nature of everything we were saying about the Hawksmoor churches and the exclusion, the male dominance, all this. This is a, a woman who does uh, paints on the floor, by uh, kind of tipping paint, but, but is all about light and created these three incredible panels that were in that church, which nobody really looked at. I kept going in every day to look at these things because I knew she was, she was very ill and somehow I felt engaging with these pictures somehow creates something. And in doing that, I got into conversation with this lady who sat in, in a desk at the door. It was wonderful, kind of a, an Asian lady who, who, every day I went there, she said to me as I went out, do you like music? Uh, yes, yeah. Do you know that Handel played this organ? And this conversation happened you know, every day for a week. And I kept saying, can I, do you have anything about these paintings? And, and she, she had nothing on the paintings. Eventually mm. she cracked and she opened a cupboard and there was this pamphlet that had a, an essay on the paintings by Brian Catley. And the paintings had gone up in 2010 and nobody knew they were there, but they just somehow were in this building. And they seem to be everything that the building was not. And they're also lit by you know, side lights, which completely destroyed them because they threw multiple shadows of crucifixes all over them and stuff. And, they, and then finally, this person disappeared and the lights were not there. And I saw the pictures as they were, which comes at the end of the book. And unfortunately, by that, by that time, Rebecca had died. But... but um, her engagement with this church was so sort of joyous and, and funny in all kinds of ways that, that they gave her the wrong measurements for a start. She installed this and then found that she'd made the painting the wrong size and she had to get up with a Stanley knife on a blade and sort of cut around the top and it fits perfectly. And then at the end of the book, it's all over and I'm finally sitting in the church looking at this and it appears that on the resurrection panel, I mean, I, this sounds ridiculous, but the the sun actually seems to rise above this sort of boiling cloud mass and go up into the sky. And I couldn't, you know, have imagined that when I set out on this journey. But I did, I did want to feel that there's something going on in a sort of mysterious way between the people who interact with these spaces and the spaces themselves and health. There are numbers of weird equations in that world. And that's basically what mm. the book's trying to do. Shall we have comments and observations and reactions? Does anyone, would anyone like to... Uh say anything. Well, thanks very much. It was fascinating. Uh, there was something you said earlier on about when you started talking about the uh, Peter Ackroyd novel and you said, um, well, he went further than we both thought was safe to go. Could you elaborate on that? What exactly do you mean by... Uh, that was me, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, what I mean by that is that Peter Ackroyd got hold of Ian's Lud Heat and took page after page of it and incorporated it into Hawksmoor. It's no. not just the idea. It's the text. I don't, I don't think that's quite fair. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I remember discovering with some surprise. There's a lot of... I, a think, lot I of think what happened was... Um, because Peter Ackroyd uh, started out as a poet 
and yeah. and uh, he he was writing in in the mode of the, the New York poets who he'd become friendly with in a, in a period after he'd left Cambridge and he came back and he was doing slim books of poetry through small presses so we we actually read together at the old poetry society in Notting Hill which was completely shambolic and run down and I, he was right reading these quite neat kind of glamorous New Yorky poems and I was I was letting rip with this nonsense about Hawksmoor churches and he became very interested in that and we corresponded a bit and and I think what he took was was the the kind of basic germ of this notion that these structures had some kind of interrelation and that, that you could you could map and plot lines of energy and all that stuff so he, he ran with that but what he was most praised for in this book was writing brilliant pastiche of Hawksmoor and Christopher Wren. Now that's that's the funny bit because actually this pastiche is just that he quoted Nicholas Hawksmoor, yeah. Christopher Wren. I mean, he I, lifted I, it straight out of yeah. it. But no, I, nobody was sort of smart enough to have read enough to know this was what was happening. I, I would add that I don't believe plagiarism is something any writer should object to because there's no point writing books and then complaining if anybody uses them even a bit roughly. But the other thing I would say on Peter Aqua's behalf is I don't think anybody could have imagined that this book would be the successful yeah. book it was. I mean, he was expecting to sell 500 copies, mostly to people who already knew... You know, I mean, that's possibly an exaggeration, but anyway, it's, it's so no, I, there was no, there was no complaint, but it was interesting to watch well, if, this if there are take off. Yeah, you know. what, what you do, and this is this is the way you create best, really mega bestsellers. It's a kind of Xerox principle that there's some crazy person in living in a, a solitary room, stalking the city, comes up with some green ink madness and drawings and things, which pass on. <laughs> to some minimally less crazy person like me who meets them in a pub and hears all these stories and feeds it into a structure that's self-published in a little book somewhere in East London. That filters up. And at the end of the line, I think it's four moves generally, you, you get Dan Brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you check them back, you know. No, I think that's you, true. You go back through. That's true. Through, has he, has he got to Hawksmore yet? No, no, but he, the Ren the Chateau, you know, all that stuff, yeah. which no, I, no, no, I no, saw sure. all the moves. I saw where yeah. it started. I saw where it finished, and yeah. you, could, you could see it coming. Because nobody knows anything anymore, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. It emerges, and it's, it, as long as you can... Each, each move smooths the language out until it's kind of this non-language at the end, because the, the, the difficulty is the, the kind of weirdness of the writing gets slightly less weird all the time, smoothed out. And then finally, because the ideas are what, what drives it, they're, they're lost, but they're, there's, no, there's no copyright on that. The, these are all things. I mean, I didn't, there's nothing original in what I did. It was based on Alfred Watkins and, you know, all these other people that, that I'd been saturated in and got through secondhand book trade. And, and the same thing um, with Pete Peter has been extraordinary probably more than anybody else, like a Victorian, in absorbing huge tranches of stuff and smoothing it and making it available to, to succeed. And there are people beyond that who turned it into mega, mega bestsellers. So that, that's the method. I get the impression that there's quite a lot of references to ghosts and the past and, and layers and layers of wallpaper <laughs> <laughs> being, being peeled back. Um, and as someone who might have another 50-odd years living in London, as a Londoner, I'd like to get some of your thoughts about what 
my generation might be facing and is it all doom and gloom? Well, it's a good question, and I would like to state as, as a sort of principle, if not a, an achieved reality or even an achievable one, that you should always trust people to be more inventive than their circumstance. So I have, I have three kids who live in tiny nooks and corners around London. Like when they, one, The eldest remembers living in this great big disintegrating house in Dalston, and he keeps screaming at me forever selling it. But, you know, I mean, it's all going on in places like Croydon. The only place I've been working in recently which hasn't got sort of young life coming into it from this sort of, from London, is, is Sheerness, which is still a little bit immune, <laughs> which is probably a very good reason to start thinking about moving to Sheerness, as long as you do it in numbers, yeah? <laughs> no, but I, th I think what, what, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing uh, essentially superior about the experience we went through, because... You know, we were still living in a city that was struggling. We were all having, we had problems. We, I, I'm sure we had it much easier. You know, when I tell students that I went to university at a time when not only did you get a grant, but you didn't pay fees, but also you got a train ticket free from the council at the beginning of every term. And that you, in the summer, I was at Kent, where the, the county was still pleased to have a university. They used to lay on free jobs almost. I mean, jobs you didn't have to work in. You could take, students were in, in, uh, asked to go and cut grass in old people's homes, which you didn't have to do. You were given a sickle and taken to some place. And so, you know, you were, you were basically employed and you could be on unemployment benefit and the vacation. I mean, you know, so we did have it easy. And then it was, I mean, it didn't feel easy at the time because always you were faced with this problem of how do you do what you're trying to do, given that you haven't got any money. I remember that for years. So, but I, I think people will just go with the flow. I mean, and if it means South End is, becomes interesting in a way that it wasn't, then that's what we, we, we will look forward to. What I wonder slightly is whether, whether place is, is still there because the, the sense of the, the movement and the engagement with the city is such that with the, the technology now, everybody moving around is actually engaged in this otherness of this much more connected world where all information in a way is instantly available and you're in you're in a dialogue all the time but it doesn't allow you to to look around and take in where exactly you are so mm -hmm. you you are in a different place so in that sense does london still exist no i mean this is your last book suggests that's that suggested it, it in sort a way, of doesn't in a it, way well, yes. for, for the kind yes. of thing we've been talking about yeah. it doesn't but on the other hand as far as I can see, even though we no longer engage with them or, or need to deal with them, the ghosts are still there. They, they do stick their heads up. Mm. Um, you know, like last night, um, Anna, my, my wife, got up, got up in the middle of the night and said, oh, God, this is a, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a presence here. And I, I went out and sat and read in the kitchen for a bit because there was somebody else in the house. And she came back and said, is there? And I said, well, yes, but I've never really bothered about it. And, and there is, you know, simply because you know that one, one family from the, this house is built in 1850-odd and, and the previous family lived there for 40-odd years and we've been there 50 years. Yes, <coughs> there, are, there are presences. There are presences, but who has time to, to notice because you're, you're so engaged in, in this other very instantaneous very fast moving, and the city moves faster because the more you're on these things, the faster you walk. <coughs> and most of them seem to be 
devices for targeting in on anybody who's not using them. So if you're walking down the pavement, you're kind of dodging, because you have to get out of the way, because they, they can't. And I think in that sense, London is, is seriously different. But I mean, it will be interesting to see what it becomes. I don't, you know, it's not over, obviously. It's still full of all kinds of energies. Mm. But it's, I think for the first time, it's a seriously different city. You could see it evolving stage by stage by stage from the post-war moment, which, which you've written about and which you see yeah, I mean, I, I, it's still it's, there in the it, 1970s. It, 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 I try to resist feeling too despairing, but I mean, I, my experience of, of being around since in this country mostly since the late 70s is that we've seen this kind of project that Thatcher initiated after that decade when I was away, so I didn't see the kind of relative chaos of the 70s, really. But we've had this sort of world in which our, our leaders have gone from one surrogate to a decent economy after another. So, you know, you start off with these weird things like saying we, we don't need coal mining, we can have tourism. You then have sort of funny alternative economic gestures like let's have buy-to-let mortgages so we can do cannibalism against the young. So repeatedly in this country we've had these policy manoeuvres that have created a kind of fairly disgusting climate, which I think you guys have had to sort of find your way in. So I think that has happened, and I think it is about the sort of slow-motion disintegration of what we used to call the post-war settlement, which, of course, at the time, we thought was dreary and boring and austere and uninteresting. But, you know, if you think of those Labour politicians like Barbara Castle and Harold Wilson, I mean, these were really substantial people. You think of big local authorities. It had already finished by the 80s, but local authorities used to rebuild cities. And in the 80s, they started being very proud of having a one-person-operated street cleaning machine. You know, there was a sort of miniaturization of municipal endeavor produced through political decisions. So, I mean, my feeling is that we are, we've got all these technological changes. I completely agree with that. And, you know, many of them are advantageous, although as a writer, you feel they kill you off as quickly as anything else. Um, but the other, the other thing we have is this kind of loss, really, of, um, of, of social fabric. And, and also the kind of loss, the demeaning of language. You know, the yeah. thing I was talking about yeah. in those adverts everywhere. And yesterday, uh, coming, coming back around uh, the Battersea Power Station zone, which has become this massive zone, the excluding walls are now covered with forests. They kind of Xerox forests, mm. miles and miles of them. So you're walking through what appears to be greenery. It's like Epping Forest has walked down there. And then the, the forest of cranes that stand above it. So what, what is being pitched is always the opposite of what's actually happening. You can mm. hardly breathe, but you're walking through a, a non-existent forest mm. that finally decants you into Van Gogh's lodging house in Hackford Road, which is completely covered over for its regeneration. And a, and a mini park alongside, yeah. which I found myself sitting in as the sun went down. And there's a box that says, leave a book and take a book. And so I left a copy of um, Last London and took away a, a very battered copy of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, which is a good swap. So I've been stealing <laughs> lines from that all day. There's a line in the second Rachel Cusk book of the latest trilogy where the narrator's moved from the country back to London. And she's describing why that's significant, and she has this line that's amazing, that it's like, the sense of self you get from London is much stronger than the countryside. So you can be here, and your sense of self is kind of a given. So you encounter someone in a city, and you kind of understand more of their self than you would in a field on a country path. Does that resonate with you? That, I that was like a really strong... Where, where, where does that come from? 
uh, Rachel Cusk, part of the latest trilogy she's written. Um, and it's just about kind of a sense of being a person in a city is very strong and you kind of inherit this energy very easily. Does that resonate or does that seem like an appropriation of things that aren't yours to appropriate? Well, I mean, Patrick, you, you know, you've written more about um, the country and the more mores of being in the country with um, journey. I, I like living in the country died for in England some ways. Things. What, what, what I like about it is that you don't have to write about it, which maybe is a way of agreeing with what you're saying. I mean, and I think it is true that, you know, urban experience is in your face and it's active and you, 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 you have more to define yourself in relationship to. And I think, I remember talking to a drummer once called Chris Cutler, I hope he's still with us, who's a sort of progressive avant-garde drummer. And I asked him something, how he dealt with constantly dealing with, with, a, with a kind of hostility from critics and people. And he said, I remember the words of a man called Sun Ra, who was that wonderful old jazz player in the, in the States. And Sun Ra apparently once said, when people said, how do you cope with the fact that people hate your music? He said, I think, resist me, make me strong. And I think you, you get that in the city, whereas in the country you don't. You get, you get that, it doesn't necessarily be aggressive resistance, but you get that sense of being in a place full of people who do not think like you do. And this becomes a normalized experience almost for everybody. And people talk in sort of terms of how we all have to get on with one another. But in the city, everybody who thinks about it knows that what we, how we get on with one another by agreeing not to get on with one another about a great many things. But we have a sort of civility about that most of the time. Whereas in the country, there's always an assumption of identity. You know, I, so I do, I, I do sort of, you know, I, know, I mean, Rachel Cuss moved to Norfolk, didn't she? So... Um, Maybe that's what she's thinking about. What I, what I find is that within London, there are certain, obviously, certain routes and things I walk, and that each each one of those, each day, is an, a, a reasserts identity because it's like bouncing back from a from a radio mast. If I come down here to this shop, I've been here dozens of times, so every time I do it, it makes the sense of self stronger because it's the self that bounces back. If, like in this book, there's a book on here, Black Apples of Galva, I had to, I walked from um, Port Island to Rossilli on the Galva Peninsula through this incredible limestone landscape. And I thought the sense of self in that was totally redundant, that, that there is no self. Uh, within that landscape, I just dissolved that the thing that mattered was the rocks and the sense of the caves and the sense of the the oldest ritual burials in the British Isles, all that stuff is there, and you go. Whereas in the city, every day I finish, I'm more embedded into my own identity. So in that sense, I think that's how it works. John Clare, the poet, had a wonderful thing of this that we call going out of his knowledge. Even though he's living in a, a small village um, north of Peterborough, he, he knew everybody, but everybody knew him. And he also knew every tree, every bird, every flower. He walks 10 miles further, and he's never seen these things before. They don't know him. He ceases to exist. He's, he imagines a huge abyss, a great pond, with his own identity on the edge of it. So when he's brought to London, and he, he's being brought to London as a, a representation of the country, he's a peasant poet. Here he is to make his way in London, his identity dissolves utterly, and he's, he's taken to see Westminster Bridge on his first night. 
because it's the words worthy and sublime, he can't, he can't register it. it. Well, it's not as good as Whittlesey Mere. And, and St. Paul's is not as good as Peterborough Cathedral. So he remaps the unknown into the known and tries to, to recover identity, but it doesn't work. His identity is gone until he sets off on this strange forced march back to the place he came from. I guess historically also democracy is rooted in the city. I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful saying by Jane Harrison, who was a classicist. She's like the sort of, I guess she's like the Mary Beard of the Edwardian age. She, she wrote a book, a popular book, alongside all her academic work, called Ancient Arts and Ritual, which was very popular. It was, it was influential on people like D.H. Lawrence. But in that, she talks about how she said, we've got to translate Dionysius to the city. And this is an old, you know, educated lady speaking. She then was, I think she then lived in Mecklenburg Square. And she said, the reason we've got to do that because the countryside is dominated by the aristocracy and they only worship their own ancestors. And I've always thought that's sort of slightly true, that the countryside is actually full of terrible forms of poverty, unbelievable forms of poverty, you know, that make sort of, the, what I see in Cambridgeshire on the edge of the fens makes the photographs of the Great Depression in America seem like they're still with us. And this has got far worse in, in that sense. But you've also got this great sort of, you know, the, 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 the congeniality and the ease and the pleasure of people who can buy their way into whatever they want and who have a very strong sense of themselves and their ownership and how they belong. You know, I think the city is, a, is, a, is a, in many ways a different and more interesting place and certainly not to be abandoned, even though I did have to move. <laughs> My question is kind of... A broad one about health uh, and illness and basically what you thought the connection was between walking and health particularly in this new urban context that you have described and spoken about um, it's often said that you know for help with mental health uh, people feeling depressed that going for a walk a short walk is kind mm -hmm. of a good thing to do but I wonder in this new context, in this last London or, or whatever it is, the new urban space, whether the walk, the urban walk as exploration or as archaeology is kind of a dangerous thing or something not to do. Well, you know, I, I, I'm severely biased, but I, I do think it is absolutely crucial to, to the health of the city and the people in it. To, if possible, I mean, not everybody can do it, but if you, if, you, if, you, if you continue to walk, even if it's a very small area that you get to know and you walk regularly every day, um, and then extend it into the, into the things, into the unknown, you, 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 you keep alert and it seems to have a miraculous effect on health. And I, I, but I think the, the, the problem with doing it is it, it's becoming more and more difficult and challenging in the city because there's no real way to exploit walking. Cycling has kind of got a, got a strong politics to it, and it seems to tick boxes. So that's had a terrific push from local council and, and central government. There's always people out in parks around Hackney in the morning giving out free apples to cyclists. And I, I thought this was pretty bad when I, was, I saw this old guy trying to cross the road, where it was a cycle track, and being obliterated and being cursed at, and then there was a table with apples and water being handed out to these cyclists who were racing by. So the, so the walker, I think, is, is a figure with a great history, but it's also really important. And uh, one of the things in this book is just sort of keep walking and the, and the thing um, doesn't quite creep, creep up on you, that, that it, it's there. You know, I've 
I'm waiting for the mo morning I walk up, I can't walk, and then, and then okay, we'll, we'll know that's time's up. But until that point, I think, think walking is, is essential. And not only recreational walk for general health, but these longer, stranger, epic walks that have been part of the, the trauma of history. I mean, walks like mentioned John Clare's walk, which is that here he is in, in Epping Forest in a, in a landscape that's unfamiliar and claustrophobic to him and where he's writing poems as if he was John, if he was Lord Byron and he suddenly has this impulse that's undeniable to take off on a walk without maps back to a place where he thinks his muse, this, this young girl is still living although she's dead and that is the definitive moment of his life and I, recently I've been following Van Gogh's walks around London that, that he's someone who's, who's in London he's not yet become a painter but he's he undertakes these incredibly epic walks. He's, he's teaching in, in Ramsgate. He walks to Canterbury, to London. No sooner is he in London than he sets off to, to Welling, 4.30 in the morning, and arrives in Welling, where his sister's teaching. And these, these journeys inform everything that goes into his art later. I think, I think there's the, there's the life-defining walk, and there's the regular, everyday, recreational, Earth yourself in the city walk, and I think both of them are re really important. And the book really is about the nature of those walks in relation to the fixed points of the city, where people are pumping things into buildings from outside, and, and uh, they have a programmatic approach to the building. The walk resists that. The walk is a kind of freedom. Um, the, the book was commissioned by the Welcome Collection, and I, one of the chapters in the book is about going to this office or the open plan space where the welcome collection is and, and the difficulty of coming off the street which is incredibly poisoned with fumes and all the rest of it, into this environment which is like all those modern environments of uh, airports, hospitals, universities they, they're, they're the same they have the same lighting, they have the same hard coloured chairs in orange and lime um, they have the tables you sit at and you can actually feel your life force draining out after five minutes there's the, the coffee with a contactless cart, and then your, the project you've come is, it doesn't matter anymore. You do anything to get out of there, and suddenly you're back in the streets, and you go somewhere you don't know, and, you, and it's like a whole new part of your life comes, kicks in. And I, I think that's the thing that's always been great to me about London, is that it's always unknowable. There's always more. Go back even to the same places, they're different. Going back to that Van Gogh house three, three different times, it was different every single time. If I set out of the door now back to Hackney, it would, it would be a new place, a new city. And if, if it continues to be a new city, I can continue to be a new person. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.